This is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm Alistair Thomas, and welcome to our podcast in partnership with Scottish Enterprise. I'm joined this week by our content editor, Andrew Dykes, and journalist, Ryan Duff. Hello, guys. Have we ever had this combination on the podcast before? No, I don't believe so. I mean, last week was my uh, my debut, right? So it was it's, your uh, debut. It would, have been, it would have been difficult for us to have done that before my first episode. Well, dear listeners, it's all downhill from here. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's uh, it's the A-team. It's the A-team this week, uh, and we were going to have a fantastic podcast. So, um, and the dust has settled for now on what has been another kind of interesting week around the political football slash hot potato slash bin fire that is UK energy policy. And this week, I think, has reaffirmed one thing for me, and that is that Twitter is an absolute sewer. You can take a divisive topic, and it just doesn't look like people are interested really in listening or indeed considering the other side. And we're talking, of course, about the Sunday Times article that came out over last weekend, and there's been an explosion of reaction to it, I think it's fair to say. I was a bit worse for wear after a wedding the previous day, and was disappointed to have to respond to that article on Sunday, but alas. And on the piece, my first thought was, hang on, didn't they already announce this at Davos a few months ago? And the second thought was around the detail of this report, this stance from Labour. No new oil and gas developments was the headline, and then it talks about no new licensing, which would perhaps imply not necessarily blocking new projects which already have a license. Then it talks about using existing wells for years or decades to come, and one assumes by that they mean existing fields, but clearly existing hubs in the North Sea, they're going to need to be you know, kept going by developing new wells nearby, infrastructure-led exploration, which may indeed require some licensing going forward. So I think the takeaway there is perhaps that energy policy is too important to be dictated by uh, perhaps over-eager advisors briefing these Sunday papers, but I'm not bitter about that, of course. But I want to talk a bit about the debate around it. So, you know, I I think for oil and gas companies themselves, I think there's been a degree of reason here. Um, Ithaca Energy, I was on their results call this week, very much along the lines of, and I'm paraphrasing, but the report's a bit unclear. We're waiting to hear the full detail of, of Labour's policy. And I know, you know, from some of the debates we've had this week, that's kind of echoed kind of the the messaging from the industry. Um, Ryan, you were speaking to David Whitehouse for the pod uh, at OAUK this week, um, which we'll have up soon, hopefully by the time you're listening to this. Um, any preview on his thoughts around this issue? Yeah, I mean, I think it's very much the same as what everyone else has been speaking about, right? It's 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 quite a simplistic kind okay, of blanket statement to be made. Um, you know, the idea that we're just going to block all licensing seems a bit, a bit harsh, yeah, a bit like out of left field. But I guess... The the main takeaway from him is, you know, OUK is obviously always in in connection with the government. It's always chatting with them. So if we did get a Labour government and this policy was on the table, it would be a case of putting ac- across the views of their their members to sort of discuss why this might not be the best sort of blanket approach, you know? Hmm. Yeah, and just to get into the debate here, Andrew, I'll bring you in in a second. Um, As I said earlier, there's been so much noise, not a lot of nuance, um, and a couple of points perhaps. Arguments keep getting brought up. Oil being sent overseas, well, sure, but we don't have the refining capacity in the UK, and it's, it's bought back as other products like plastics. I mean, look around your table and you'll see plenty of um, products from oil. Um, you know, those, aren't, those, those don't just arrive magically. 
we are a net importer of oil and gas. And according to that Committee on Climate Change Balanced Net Zero Pathway, we will continue to be for, for many years to come, even with new fields being brought online. And if that's the case, why wouldn't you produce domestically and enjoy the economic benefits that provides? There's an argument around electricity prices being tied to gas. I think that's fair. Clearly, there's reform needed there. Gas is reliable baseload power, of course, and it's used for much more than just electricity, though. And I think ultimately the argument hasn't really centered around enough around what needs to happen to get offshore wind and renewables ramped up. That's how you actually just stop oil. You know, we had a floating wind turbine this week, 10 miles off Aberdeen, being towed hundreds of miles to Rotterdam because there isn't anywhere apparently in the UK that can service it. And we want to build these at vast scale domestically in the next few years, never mind just repair them. So, you know, there's grid connection issues, skills transfer issues, consenting and planning, all these other things. And I really, I don't think the, the, the noise on Twitter so much focused on that, more just kind of oil bad. It wasn't very much on, okay, what do we need to do to actually solve this problem? Um, Andy, what, what is your thoughts uh, around that? I mean, I think it's, it's coming down to this issue, which is increasingly at the sharp end of this debate, which is about kind of climate leadership versus the practicalities of what you end up with from that, right? Mm. So I think clearly... Politicians of all creeds are, are keen to, so, to show climate leadership on behalf of Scotland, on behalf of the UK, and kind of, to a certain extent, draw a line in the sand around our relationship with fossil fuels. And oil and gas and the North Sea are, are clearly at the sharp end of that. Setting an end date for licensing feels like something that will inevitably need to happen at some point, yeah. right? And there's, there's just this debate as to when. <laughs> Everyone now just runs in a circle around when that is exactly going to be. I mean, the, the new licensing, as, as you mentioned at the beginning, is a little bit of a kind of misnomer, right? Because even with fields that, that are existing, you're going to need to drill infill wells, you're going to need to keep production up, even if you're saying you won't drill any more frontier exploration. Um, that seems to be, I think, where a lot of the confusion comes, right? There's an argument there for a, a, a solid differentiation, isn't there? I mean, why why can't we differentiate between infrastructure-led near-field exploration, which, by the way, is like the majority of, of new wells anyway, these really small tiebacks? Um, that, that's kind of the North Sea now. It, it, it's very, very rare. I and mean, in fact, we may never again get another Rosebank or a Cambo in terms of a new discovery. So... Wouldn't it be a wouldn't it be a good solution to say to, to kind of cut off frontier exploration and focus more on the hubs? Then you might say, well, how is that going to attract business into the UK if you know there is fines out there that people want to get after, and we're not going to do it? I mean, it's 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 quite a difficult one too. <laughs> I, I, I don't I don't envy the NSTA and uh, and certainly Grant Shapps when trying to come up with this stuff. I mean, that that seems to me like a sensible approach if we're beginning to open that dialogue. But obviously, of course, if you're an oil and gas company, you're you're not going to, <laughs> you know, you're, it's turkeys waiting for Christmas type stuff. Isn't it? You know, you're not going to get you're not really going to get behind that policy with uh, the uh, full support that, they, <laughs> that some politicians may ask you to. Um, I think the other thing is, is to, to kind of uh, give a little bit of uh, credence to the other side of the argument. Obviously, Tessa Khan from Uplift was speaking uh, shortly after David Whitehouse on Monday morning on Good Morning Scotland, kind of making the point that from, from the consumer's point of view and certainly on the ground, you know, in the UK, that affordability is a greater issue around energy than supplies that, you know, our electricity supplies obviously at the moment are pegged to gas, which has risen. Uh, that is kind of the main issue that is driving people's relationship to energy right now and 
continued North Sea exploration, while it will kind of support that, we, as you say, we do export a lot. The uh, shift that we would be able to bring around in global gas supplies by bringing on new North Sea supplies would be absolutely negligible at best. Oh, yeah. And she, exactly. So she made the case for kind of a wider acceleration to renewables, which I think no one is not behind. I think that's also important. You know, I don't, I don't think Offshore Energies UK is... is uh, not behind a transition to renewables but again it's the it's the sort of sense of pace and the order in which we do this that sort of keeps coming up as this problem it, it seems that the, the uk government you know somebody does need to set a timeline um the, the issue around the the transfer of i mean she's, she's right obviously electricity prices are linked to gas due to that baseload power issue and you know obviously gas as i said before it's not just electricity and not everyone's got a heat pump in their house but you know if we want to use, you know, renewable electricity as, as kind of that baseload sector, I mean, are we talking about nuclear? Um, you know, in Scotland, clearly there's a stance against nuclear. And if we want to ramp up offshore wind, then we're going back to these other issues. And, and firstly, about storage, um, which which isn't really there yet. And then ramping it up to a degree where we can rely on it without kind of intermittency. Um, you know, we don't have the we don't have the infrastructure in place yet. And we're not going to have it in place for some years yet. So you know, I mean, cutting off your nose to spite your face. If if you know if, if we if we do it at the wrong timeline, is kind of I think I think that's where everyone's at. But it does it seems like who who makes the call in terms of um, trying to get this going faster? It seems like governments looking to industry, industries looking to government, and there's a, a number of regulators in the mix who are also trying to come up with answers. But I think one other thing is is this idea of like offshoring, right? And, and especially with renewables, it's been a continued contention that we. Uh, we kind of import the the, uh, the commodities, the uh, equipment, everything else to make this renewable transition happen. You know, we do already have the equipment to make North Sea production kind of sustainable in the medium term. Mm -hmm. We have the expertise and we have the infrastructures already there. It, it does seem that if you're kind of making a, a sustainability argument, it, it does make sense to prolong the production that we have to a sensible degree but i think this this it's the new oil and gas fields i think continually kind of butt up against this idea of of leadership yeah yeah and there is something to be said to trying to draw a line in the sand as well in terms of making that leadership stance as you say andy so i think we could talk about this for a long time to come but i think we've got we're gonna have a bit more time to talk about it um and this among other things was discussed at our invest abz event this week and Ryan's coming up to recap us on that just after this. The Making Scotland's Future Conference, previously known as the Scottish Manufacturing Advisory Service National Manufacturing Conference, will take place on the 22nd of June at the Royal Bank of Scotland Gogoburn HQ in Edinburgh. A key highlight in Scotland's manufacturing calendar, this year's event has a strong focus on productivity and emerging opportunities. Businesses attending can expect to take part in workshops and best practice sessions on topics including supply chain resilience, industry 4.0 technologies, leadership and culture, operational excellence and sustainability. Book today by visiting makingscotlandsfutureconference.scot. Okay, Ryan, Invest ABZ this week. Um, quite a few kind of political issues discussed there. Um, talk us through what you discussed with uh, the Scottish Energy Minister first off. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, Gillian Martin was up in Aberdeen at the Chester Hotel for our event. And I think we'd have been amiss not to mention the, the big news story that was happening uh, at the start of the week. So yeah, I, I got a couple of minutes with her. I chatted to her about this uh, this issue, about the, the proposed Labour policy. 
And she kind of slammed it, which, you know, I guess you could say it was a bit bit strange given what uh, what Hamza Yusuf was saying just a couple of weeks previous at, uh, at All Energy, saying that there would have to be a strong reason before new licenses would be handed out. But she called the, the policy tone deaf, and she even went as far as to say if she was a Labour politician running in the next general election, she'd be terrified of what uh, Keir Starmer is saying, which is a... Uh, quite a strong line um mm. i think i suppose that might be fair regardless of the policy though <laughs> well that's very true it might just be regarding anything he comes out with but i guess i guess especially if you're a labor pol- uh, you know politician looking to win a seat in in an energy spot like the northeast you know so many of your voters are either employed by the 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 industry or you know all these people that are employed have got you know friends and family that will also go well if I vote for Labour does that mean I'm essentially getting rid of my pal's job or my husband's job my wife's job whatever it is so I think it's fair to say that yeah I think if you are a Labour candidate you would be a little bit a little bit scared of that um you know it, it wasn't just it wasn't just Gillian Martin that discussed the topic though uh, Bob Ruderman, a partner and head of energy at law firm Burnus Paul, who was on our first panel, also addressed it. And he said that he was disappointed with, with the way it's come out and, you know, claimed that it was kind of just trying to grab sound bites instead of maybe forming a solid argument, for uh, forming a solid sort of policy that's well-rounded and takes into account industry and, yeah, the move to net zero. Mm. But it, it, sorry, go on, Ryan. I interrupt you. That oh way. no, I was awaiting transition to the rest of the event, so feel free. Well, look at that. This is this <laughs> is the kind of repartee you don't get on the other podcasts. Um, so, I mean, starting with the SNP, it, it does feel from the outside like a bit of a, a, a tricky political tightrope for them to walk. I mean, Mary McAllen, the, the Net Zero Secretary, was was at this Aberdeen Chamber breakfast that I was at a couple of weeks ago. And, and she sent out what I thought was some quite encouraging signals, particularly around kind of rebuilding trust and relationships with the business community that perhaps it might be argued wasn't there during the previous uh, kind of uh, tenure um, of, of those in charge in the Scottish government. And you don't really do that if you're going to have a, a presumption against new drilling, in Aberdeen anyway, I suppose, because that will see... It will see fields shut down prematurely, and we, we talked about earlier about new field, near field exploration and the Committee on Climate Change targets and, and the, the economic um, sense to keep these going. Equally, you know, seeing the response on Twitter from people who I know had only read the headline kind of lambasting Gillian Martin, they hadn't actually read the story. I mean, just curious, what, what, do, you, what do you make of the, the reaction to that one, um, Ryan, um, in terms of how 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 Gillian Martin came off. I mean, clearly uh, there there's a bit of a a disconnect between. I suppose there seems to be a disconnect between what Labour and the SNP is saying nominally, but I, I don't know to what extent uh, we'll see actual changes. Yeah, I mean, it was it was quite interesting. I saw a few comments, you know, along the lines of, "Well, it's good to see that Gillian's got the party line," you know, and she's sort of just sort of regurgitating what she's been told to say, but. You know, she she's a northeaster. She's from from this area, and I th- I think when she was on the panel, she did speak quite passionately about keeping jobs in in the sector uh, in the area, 
sort of keeping a good relationship with the sector. You know, she described it as it once was the backbone of the British economy and it almost certainly still is the backbone of the Scottish economy. Um, so, you know, like, it's clear that at least her independently, um, she still sees a lot of value in the sector. And I think it's it's also important that I you know we hear this phrase quite a lot. It's, it's a transition, right? It's not it's not a revolution. We're not trying to you know I, I don't think we achieve the move to wind by just getting or or any renewables by just getting rid of everything. You know we've got solid skills, we've got solid infrastructure here. We need to sort of build upon what we have rather than totally upturn, right? Hmm. So yeah, I I feel like she she was quite passionate about keeping keeping jobs in the sector you know she pointed to you know Hamza Youssef and his what first or second week is as first minister he came up and went around the port of Aberdeen he was speaking with energy companies yeah. she you know he seems to have a slightly maybe not as a strong a stance as maybe his predecessor Nicola Sturgeon had on no new oil and gas he's kind of like I say all, uh, all energy he was kind of speaking more like well if there's a good reason for it then you know like there's no reason why it shouldn't, but it needs to have strong justification, which I think is a little bit more understandable than a blanket no new licenses, right? There's one other point I'd make on this before we move on. Um, you, you were talking a bit earlier about the, the 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 number of people kind of if somebody sees that labour policy, they're not just thinking about themselves if they're in oil and gas. It might be you know uh, uh, somebody's friend or 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 relative who's thinking, oh well, they're going to get put out of work if this party gets in. There, there was. There was a tweet from an activist group this week, I think in reply to Grant Shapps. As far as I could see, the tweet was deleted. But it was something along the lines of, oh, 200,000 jobs supported by oil and gas when only 10,000 of them are offshore. How are you getting that with this math? And I was just, my first thought was, well, clearly you've never spoken to a taxi driver in Aberdeen or a, or a hotelier or a restauranter or an events manager or a lawyer, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it's just like, there's a lot of ignorance around the actual economic impact the jobs impact of of the industry um and you know if, if if that permeates across wider scotland or indeed the wider uk then you could see why people would have concerns and you know i hope that the sound bites aren't necessarily taking over um but yeah what, what- can can i throw one cynical point into the mix which is whether this whether labor's policy so assuming hypothetically they are the government in waiting they enact this policy you know is that actually a minor victory for the SNP in Scotland because there isn't a lot of difference between their their two positions I think really based on what Nicola Sturgeon said maybe there's been some development with Hamza Youssef but I wouldn't say they're kind of chalk and cheese uh, descriptions of the policies you know they would then get to kind of carry out their presumption against new exploration or certainly new licensing while railing against any efforts by Westminster not to fund the Just Transition Fund, which is kind of their main political instrument at the moment, I would say. You know, that, that's the thing that they tend to lead on a lot of the comms is just trying to back. And I think they want Westminster to match the 500 million they've put in for Murray in the Northeast yeah. to bring it up to about a billion pounds. You know, it could be a minor political victory for them to have <laughs> Labour essentially enact their policy for them 
while all the time they get to say that they're not listening to workers properly. And as you say, oh, it's a tone deaf announcement, but really it is not too dissimilar to what we would like in the end. That is so uh, cynical I, of you, Andrew. I can't believe you'd say that. <laughs> I'll be leaving I'll be leaving Energy Voice at the end of this week for my new role in political <laughs> communications. <funny>. So <laughs> But no, I mean that's my two cents. I, I think you've burnt bridges with Labour and SMP there. <laughs> I don't doubt either's commitment to the energy transition, uh my my own disclaimer. But I wonder whether, yeah, in terms of the political rhetoric, whether this actually benefits them in the long run. Some political gamesmanship perhaps there. No, I think that's a very valid point. Um and indeed it will be a good position for them. Um just while we've got a little bit of time here, Ryan, what else uh, from Invest ABZ that we should probably pick up and mention here? Well, uh, since, you know, yourself and uh, me, uh, Alistair, we're both recording from Aberdeen, uh, you know, the, the first panel was on, is the city still Europe's oil capital or Europe's energy hub was uh, the phrase used. And, you know, the general consensus was yes, you know, like we've, we've got supply chain here, we've got uh, you know, like world-leading skills, you know, we've we've got the, the infrastructure offshore. I think um, generally, yeah, like I say, people were on board with it. Uh, you know, the panelists discussed the opportunities that we have going forward. You know, uh, with, if you look at Scotland and Intog, a lot of that is around around Aberdeen, right? Um, speaking about the, the opportunities with hydrogen, you know, you've got BP's hydrogen hub, which is coming through Intog, but then this week we're hearing about subsea seven uh, working with the the South Harbour, you know, and then even even going into sorry yeah the the South Harbour we're now getting the Noble Innovator coming in, so we've got new work there for supply chain too. So there was a lot of buzz around the, this is a time to invest, you know, but at the same time, just because we may have been once. Europe's oil capital, if you want to to go with that and say that, yeah, we were leading the way. We don't have a God-given right to still be, right? You know, like someone could easily take over. You know, if you look at Stavanger, they could easily take over when it comes to wind. But I think the the idea is now's the time to invest. Now's the time to roll your sleeves up and, you know, batter on with it and make sure that we can keep this title and keep working forward. You know, um, I mentioned Bob earlier, and he was saying he spends a lot of time in Houston. And the way he sees it, yes, Aberdeen is Europe's energy hub, but the like the global capital of energy is Houston. That's the, the, that was how he described it. And he goes, even even when he's speaking to people over there, they're wanting to learn lessons from us. So that's clearly very positive. Uh, that being said, uh, there was obviously talk about CCUS as well, and I feel like you can speak about CCUS in the Northeast and not address ACORN, which uh, Gillian Martin was uh, saying she was bitterly disappointed that there's not a concrete timetable for the Track 2 funding, which I think uh, I think everyone's kind of wee bit like, when when are we getting this? When, like, when do we get an announcement? Uh, you know, I think everyone's kind of waiting with bated better mm-hmm. breath. So even that latest... Uh, CCS license agreement announcement. It's like, well, what's the details though? Like, you know, wh- where's the nitty gritty? So, yeah, um, a lot, a lot of positive, a lot of reason to be optimistic. But time to roll our sleeves up, time to actually get things going. I think is generally the the consensus. That's another nice soundbite to end on. Maybe are both Andrew and Ryan going to enter politics after Energy Voice? <laughs> okay, uh, thanks, Ryan. Uh, and next up, we'll take a look at perhaps one of the more tumultuous AGMs from Big Oil after this. Mm-hmm. 
In this third episode of Series 2 of Giggle Waters, brought to you by Sustainable Growth Voice and Energy Voice Out Loud, in paid partnership with Ersted, we're going to be looking at innovation, new technologies such as floating wind, and their role in the economic transformation currently taking place. This is really important as a driver of economic growth at a national, regional, and local level. For this episode, I'm joined by co-host Emma Toulson, lead stakeholder advisor at Ersted, and our special guest, Claire Canning, Program Manager for the Offshore Wind Growth Partnership, part of the Global Offshore Wind Catapult. We're going to be looking at innovation in economic transformation and how this can affect skills, supply chain and infrastructure in ways that highlight the benefits of the energy and net zero transition. This podcast is available now. Okay, so AGMs, there's been, well, quite a few of them recently, Andrew, but uh, starting perhaps with Total Energy is one that seems to have been a bit more fraught than others. Yeah, in a month of AGMs, uh, the results have only gotten faster. So we've had three in the last week, uh, Total Energy's last Friday, the 26th, ExxonMobil and Chevron on the same day on Wednesday, 31st. I think the takeaway from me is that there is a transatlantic gap that we've maybe already mentioned in kind of valuations, but it does seem to be getting a little bit wider in terms of investors as well. So first, Total. Um, Fair to say the event itself was greeted in a very uh, French way with uh, a huge amount of protests outside the uh, venue. Protesters were tear gassed, uh, I believe, at locking on and uh, sitting down in the surrounding streets. I think some people were being uh, carried and kind of uh, escorted by police into the venue. I think once they were in, uh, everyone attending the meeting was required to place their phones in sealed bags for the duration. So, I mean, really, I think the atmosphere speaks for itself there. The main thing uh, from our perspective for, for the Total uh, AGM was these two climate-related votes that were on the table. So the first one was backed by the company itself. That was asking shareholders to approve its sustainability and climate progress report, and contained within that report is its associated climate strategy. There was another uh, amendment, uh, a vote, sorry, tabled by a band of investors, activist investors looking to press the company to adopt targets for its indirect scope three emissions. So this is a, a group of 17 investors. They make up about 1.4% of the company's capital, I think 1.1 billion euros roughly. Uh, amongst them are two of the kind of leading names around these uh, activist investors in oil and gas, so Reclaim Finance and Follow This. So their draft resolution had called on Total to set targets aligned with the Paris Climate Agreement for use of uh, for scope three emissions related to the use of energy products sold to customers. Mm. Uh, Reclaim acknowledged that before that, even if it wasn't binding, uh, a vote in favour of that motion would send a strong signal that the company needed to improve the ambition of its strategy. Uh, Total came out uh, guns blazing ahead of the AGM and said, quote, the resolution does not provide a credible response to the challenges of climate change and it would be contrary to the interests of the company, its shareholders and its customers. It made the, uh, you know, I think, relatively valid point that the scope three emissions of its products and the scope one emissions of the customers down the chain are not cumulative but overlapping. So it uses the example of, you know, Total produces jet fuel, it records that in scope three, but then the airline that uh, uses the jet fuel Yet jet fuel would record that in their scope one, and it kind of it wants to avoid double counting. Um, however, it has already, in its own estimates, suggested that its scope three emissions will amount to fewer than four hundred million tons of CO two equivalent by twenty thirty. A figure it's already met in twenty two 
2022 when it uh, calculated 389 million tons. So it's kind of already suggesting it's meeting targets well into the future based on these rough metrics. Reclaim again is, is saying it's important that uh, as the 12th largest oil and gas producer and the seventh largest developer of new oil and gas fields, again, it's about this this leadership uh, ideal and that the investors behind the company should also take an interest and a social responsibility to ensure it's uh, aligned with 1.5 degrees. Cut to the vote. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, 89% of uh, investors backed the climate strategy uh, from the company. However, the follow this resolution got 30% of votes up from 17% in 2020, which was the last time they put a similar resolution forward. So I think nearly doubling uh, groundswell of support for their resolution in, in alignment with Paris and, and Scope 3. Across the Atlantic, <laughs> they filed the same resolution at Exxon and Chevron, where support actually fell at both. So uh, support for their resolution fell to 11% at ExxonMobil from 28% in 2022 and 10% at Chevron from 33% in 2022. Um, only one petition uh, in those AGMs received more than 20% of uh, support, which is kind of regarded as the threshold for showing a strong side of dissent by investors, which was 36% of shareholders supporting a proposal asking Exxon to directly measure methane emissions rather than use estimates. Uh, and another uh, quarter of shareholders endorsed a vote about uh, information showing how slowing plastics demand could affect the company's bottom line. Um, Chevron, again, nowhere near similar results. I think that the uh, tabled resolutions that got the most support was one about uh, assessing the impact of an energy transition on workers and the communities in which Chevron operates. So uh, follow this, obviously very uh, encouraged by the result in Paris, very discouraged by the result in the States. Uh, Mark Van Baal, their founder, said it's incomprehensible that most investors still accept the US supermajors' refusal to cut emissions and uh, kind of lambasted their lack of serious target making at all. Um, I think, as we said, you know, this, there's a, already a kind of difference in valuations and a difference in how clearly investors value these companies. Give, you know, this, the scale of them obviously may differ slightly, but I think it's now becoming clear that that, uh, that gap and that perception by investors is also making its way through to kind of climate strategy as well. Really interesting to see the, the differential. Um, just, I guess, staying with, I mean, firstly, I, I, I think can't really underline enough that what sev- you said 17% up to 30%. I mean, that's, that's a, that is a rebellion. Um, in, in the clearest terms, and and well past that twenty percent of like oh we're slightly unhappy with the direction you know yeah they they clearly uh, kind of marshaled a lot of support around that it's huge uh, and 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 then what what I found kind of curious as well and we're talking about a, a differential between the, the America and Europe but just kind of the differential between I guess the North Sea between the UK and Europe um, I was having a look at follow this as resolutions for similar resolutions for Shell only got about a fifth of I say only. About a fifth of shareholder support at their AGM, yeah. and what seventeen percent at BPs. So that would exactly. Yeah. What does that tell us? Do you think about the strength of feeling in in Europe, perhaps, versus the UK? Does it tell us anything? Am I reading too much into it? Particularly around shareholders, I suppose, versus you know, the general public. Yeah, I mean, I think it uh, clearly 
signifies where these gaps are happening, right? I, I wonder, I, I don't know enough about the sort of institutional makeup of all the different investors in each company. Um, but clearly, it seems like people in Europe, I, I wonder whether it's to do with financial guidance and also to do with just the general pace of transition in Europe that they really now see this as a kind of, uh, not necessarily a threat, but certainly something that the company will have to get its head around and look at compliance, you know, within the next decade. And there's no longer that kind of uh, oh, it goes into this big bucket of scope three that, you know, everyone's trying to deal with, but no one can really wrap their heads around. You know, I think it, it's worth saying, I think all of them, pretty much every uh, super major has some kind of scope three uh, ambition or target, but it's whether th this was kind of crucially whether it is Paris aligned. And that is, again, this, this important distinction that will completely change the trajectory of what you might want to implement strategically. Um, one one thing as well, sorry, was from, from the Total side was ahead of the vote. Uh, it was uh, their resolution was backed by a proxy advisor, um, ISS, and I do wonder whether that had an effect. Just you know, some of the kind of senior figures in the industry are looking at these resolutions and going, it, it is a good idea that as a you know sensible investor, you are behind these kinds of resolutions. And I wonder what effect that had. I think. Um, ahead of it follow this said that, that their support was a breakthrough so i, I, I do yeah, i'm interested in, in knowing uh who responded to that total energies is quite an interesting one i mean they've got this lawsuit against greenpeace at, at the moment um related to emissions and this report and then i guess they felt perhaps compelled to take action uh, and you know they seem to more perhaps more than other majors have been really kind of fighting and pushing back against some of the claims, I suppose, of, of, of NGOs. Um, so perhaps not so much here in the UK, but in Europe. I mean, I guess Total Energy is becoming something a bit of a bit more of a focal point for climate clashes. I mean, I'm, I'm just thinking about what you said about tear gas earlier as well. I mean, imagine something like that. I mean, okay, I think there's probably a symptom of, as you mentioned, kind of the the protests that have been going on in Paris that we saw tear gas at this. But can you can you imagine something like that at a an AGM outside, you know, BP or Shell and, and the, the ammunition, uh, for lack of a better phrase, that would give uh, climate protesters in this country if something like that was to go on and, and for, you know, UK police to be so heavy handed, you might argue they already are being with some of the laws that have been passed, but tear gas, you know. I mean, I was on the SG Voice podcast as well this week to talk about the, the same topic. Uh, do give it a listen if you are in the market for podcasts on sustainability. Um, but we were kind of talking about the kind of, there's, the, there's that corporate, there's that investor uh, push for these sorts of things, right? That's all very about uh, sustainability and strategic investment and kind of aligning portfolios and things. And then there's the social atmosphere outside that meeting, which is people <laughs> being, you know, dragged off the street by police people being tear gas and forced back people being escorted into the venues because you know there's such a an upswell of feeling against the uh perceived you know business models of these companies and i think increasingly those are those are going to come into contact with with each other right you know we've already had a lot of agm disruption in the past 18 months i think at one point we there was one that we kept moving due to some kind of protest they had to keep moving it around london to like some kind of secure location <laughs> You know, it, I can't, uh, I don't think it's too far away that that may make it onto our shores too, you know. 
Oh, well, indeed. Well, on, on that happy note, <laughs> I keep doing this. We have the running order and then there's... Uh, anyway, no, it was good. Uh, that is about all the time we have. So that is it for this latest episode of Energy Voice Out Loud. We'll be back next week. Meantime, thanks to Andrew and Ryan for joining me. I've been Alistair Thomas, and thanks for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter, and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.